to do what so many people have done before us, to very simply open God's Word and, Lord willing, get the sense, get the meaning of what God's Word has to say and then have it applied to our lives. I mean, very truthfully, you're not here this morning to, to get good advice. You're not here this morning for some kind of inspirational chat. Our time this morning is to hear from God's very Word. That we open it and read it and it's as though God is speaking through His Word to us. And the passage He has for us is in Matthew chapter 21. But let me say this as well. That sometimes I think about the fact during the week as I'm preparing a sermon on a particular passage. And I think to myself, I may never preach this passage again. It's very likely that these four or five verses that we're looking at this morning, I may never have the opportunity to preach again. But that goes the same for those who are listening. That we may never have the opportunity to hear this passage again. And so it's important that we really dive in to learn and to grab all we can out of it. Knowing that God is is going to take His Word and by the Spirit of God He'll apply it to us to make us more like the Son of God, all for the glory of God. So very important that we are, 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 are intentional about our time this morning together. But Matthew chapter 21, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. In the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, If you have faith and you do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So last week we saw the triumphal entry of Jesus, where Jesus gets on this donkey colt and he rides into the city of Jerusalem. And you remember what happens where the crowds all gather around and they take their palm branches, which again, the palm branches were a sign of victory. They take their cloaks and they lay them all out on the ground for Jesus and for the, for the colt to walk on as Jesus is riding on it. And the imagery, as you even imagine Jesus riding on that colt into the city, the imagery is exceedingly clear. That Jesus has come to his own as their king. We saw five great truths about him. That he was, is the Lord. That he is the fulfillment of prophecy. That he's the son of David. That he is zealous for God's house. And that he is worthy of all praise. So certainly that Jesus is the Lord. He was directing every circumstance that was going on in regards to his triumphal entry. But also we saw the application of that we of course should live in submission to his own lordship. But we also saw that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. So he is the one that the Old Testament, that first half of your Bible, has been looking forward to. He is the Messiah that was to come. From Genesis 3.15, where you see that, uh, where where God promises to even the snake, where it says that somebody's going to come and and bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. An indication that there's a Messiah to come and save his people. And the whole Old Testament speaks his name. You can see within the New Testament, where it says all the promises of God have found their yes in Jesus. So Jesus was a very clear fulfillment of prophecy. 
Jesus also was the son of David. And we notice specifically that he didn't come into the city on Palm Sunday in order to be the warrior king. In order to overthrow the Romans that had, uh, had conquered and been over the, the area of Israel at that time. He did not come to overthrow them. He did not come to spill their blood, but he came to spill his own blood on behalf of the people. But we also saw that Jesus is zealous for God's house. Remember that he goes into that temple complex and there's all these money changers and selling and buying and profiting going on within the temple. And what does Jesus do? He goes in and clears out the whole lot of them. He is zealous for the house of God. But then we also noted at the end that Jesus is worthy of praise. He goes back into that temple complex and he heals the, the, blame, the, the, the blind and the lame. And then the children are singing his praises as the chief priests are standing back in indignation. So the first couple days of what we refer to as Passion Week has been quite action-packed to this point. So on Palm Sunday, Jesus makes his way into the city. The following day, he clears out the temple, which we looked at last week. But he does something very strange also on the Monday. So you notice within Matthew, there's a little bit of a a, a flip-flop of the timeline. So Mark tells us, that Jesus walked in on the Monday, and that's when he curses the fig tree, and then he goes and he clears out the temple complex. So there's a little bit of a flip in Matthew. Matthew is not as concerned with the timeline as Mark is, but Mark is much more clear in regards to what happened specifically on that first day. So before Jesus even goes in and clears the temple, he is on his way to Jerusalem. And as a man, like any other man, Jesus gets hungry. He wants breakfast. So he's making his way in. He sees a fig tree off in the distance. He says, hey, maybe there's some figs on there. I'll go over and I'll grab some figs and I'll uh, satisfy my hunger for a little while. We have a little bit of a difficulty understanding Jesus at some times, don't we? Where there's, there's certain points where he's like, hey, winds in the waves, all of you just stop. Everything be still, right? Where he shows his complete divinity. But then on the other side, you, should, you see his complete humanity. He's walking, he's hungry, and here he is demonstrating the fact that he is not only 100% God, but he is also 100% man. And so like any other man, Jesus gets hungry. And so as he's on his way, he sees a fig tree. Now, how many of you have ever, I'm curious, how many of you have ever eaten a fig? You've eaten oh, a lot more. I didn't have a fig until like two years ago when I was working at a health food store. It's like, oh, there's figs. <laughs> kind of gross looking, but I'll go ahead and try it. So I'm kind of interested. Fig Newtons don't count, by the way. So it, it, should we redo that? No. But when I was writing the sermon this week, I was going to say something like, now, there aren't any fig trees in Maine. And I was like, well, maybe there is a fig tree in Maine. And so I hopped on good old trusty Google, because nothing's true unless Google says it's true. So you get on Google, and I typed in fig trees in Maine. And it turns out that there's actually a guy in southern Maine who has a fig tree. And he planted the fig tree within his yard, and he built kind of like a, a little wall that uh, would, would get warm even in the wintertime and, and hopefully warm the tree so that it would help the tree. But after years of trying to do that, it didn't work out. And so he took the fig tree, he thought it was pretty anyway, and it was small, so he brought it into his house. And of course, being in a consistent, you know, 70 degrees or whatever it was, the tree began to grow. And so he had to get a bigger pot for it put it in the bigger pot, began to grow some more, bigger pot, grow some more. And pretty soon, after even years of having this tree, 
there were figs that began to grow on this tree. And so now he has this little harvest time where he produces and harvests his own figs right here in the state of Maine. And so although there is at least one fig tree in the state of Maine, we're not generally accustomed to seeing them like Jesus would have been accustomed to seeing them in his day in that area. But Jesus comes up to this fig tree on his way to Jerusalem, and from a good distance, he can see that the tree is full of leaves, which the indication is that if the tree is full of leaves, then there's going to be good fruit on the tree. Mark, however, does point out that this is not the season for figs. So it wasn't the time to be harvesting them, but what often would happen is there would be little green edible, you know, figs that just aren't ripe yet, and they were still edible, they would still satisfy hunger. So Jesus went up to the tree, at least expecting that there would be some sort of uh, fig that would be edible on the tree. But as he gets to the tree, and as he starts examining it, there are absolutely no figs to be found. And you can imagine the irritation, right? I mean, remember, Jesus is a man, men get hungry, and he's expecting fruit to be on this tree. But it's at this moment where we see Jesus really do one of the things, more outrageous things that we have seen him do within the pages of the book of Matthew. He literally kills the tree. Look at the end of verse 19 again. Jesus says, May no fruits ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once. And so after inspecting this tree, he talks to the tree, and he curses it, and the tree withers it begins to die and so I, as I was studying this looking at it thinking through it I'm thinking is Jesus this petulant is he like a kid who who reaches his hand into a cookie jar finds no cookie in there and says ah tosses it to the ground and says may no cookie come from you ever again I mean is he that petulant that there, there weren't any figs on it so you know what you might as well die so what's the deal Jesus is not throwing a fit because he wants to fill his belly. He'd certainly love to eat some figs, but he is not ultimately upset that there aren't any figs. What he's demonstrating is his judgment on the people of Israel and Jerusalem for being a fruitless people like this fruitless fig tree. I think even when you consider the surrounding context of this passage... Jesus is extremely upset over the state of the people. We noted last week that he wept over the city of Jerusalem when he rode into it, after he rode into it. Later on this day, he knows he's going to go into the temple. He knows what's going on in the temple, and he's going to drive all of those people out of it. It's obvious that this city and what's going on within the city is an extreme disappointment to Jesus. And so the fig tree becomes a sort of parable That demonstrates the hypocrisy of the people of Israel and the fact that Jesus stands as their judge. Jesus judges the tree for being a hypocritical tree. A tree that has all the appearance of fruit, but upon examination actually has no fruit at all, just like the people of Israel. So the people are there, the temple is there, the sacrifices are all happening, there's a lot of religious stuff that's going on, but it's a sham. And Jesus knows that it's a sham, and he's going to do something about it. 
Jesus has been dealing so much with the great hypocrisy of the religious rulers, in particular in the book of Matthew. Jesus generally looks at the people of Israel and he has compassion on them. He looks at them as sheep without a shepherd and so forth. But he knows the ones who are leading them astray are incredibly hypocritical. So he's dealing specifically with with the great hypocrites who are leading all of the sheep of Israel into hypocrisy with them, into error with them. Now what do you think of when you think of the word hypocrite? The word originally comes from Greek, which eventually became known to mean like an actor, right? So somebody who is playing a part that they themselves really aren't. So hypocrisy itself is actually clearly condemned within the pages of the Bible. As you continue through the New Testament and you see the different writings, Peter himself clearly condemns hypocrisy. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy, and all slander. So hypocrisy is something that is needed to be put away from ourselves. It's something that needs to be put away from the Christian community. But what is ironic is that the cry of the world is that the church is full of hypocrites. You ever heard that? So so the clear demonstration of Scripture is condemnation on hypocrisy. Yet the world says, well, I don't want to go to church. Because the church is full of hypocrites. It's like the great trump card for somebody who doesn't want to go to church. I heard a great response actually to that. When somebody says the church is full of hypocrites, you can just say, well, there's always room for one more. So you can bring them along with you. (laughs) But the truth is, we can be hypocritical like this fruit tree. Where there's, where there's plenty of leaves, there's plenty of size, even like that guy who down in Portland has a tree, right? The, the tree had leaves, it, it even began to grow, but there was no fruit on it. And that can be exactly like you and me. Where we like to try to set ourselves up to have all the appearance of growth. We like to set ourselves up to have the appearance of bearing fruit and having that fruitfulness in our lives. But upon being further examined, there's actually no fruit whatsoever. If somebody here were to examine your life beyond Sunday morning, would they find the fruit of God hanging from your heart or would it be bare? I want to show you a biblical example of hypocrisy. Turn over to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. We, of course, went through the book of Galatians a couple of years ago and saw this account where Paul has to oppose this man named Cephas, who was the apostle Peter. That's another name for Peter. But the book of Galatians, beginning in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Peter, when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so you see what very clearly happens 
is that the Apostle Paul, he, he shows up to this place where Peter was and where Barnabas was, another big name in the New Testament, and all these other Jews. And James comes in with all of these Gentiles. And what happens? Peter actually is hypocritical and he won't eat with the Gentiles. Why? Because he's fearing what the Jews are going to think about. And so Peter even leads Barnabas astray, who's known as a very solid Christian within the New Testament. And so they refuse to eat with the Gentiles because they're all Jews. And so they huddle together and they eat together as Jews. And what Paul says is that when I saw what was happening, I confronted them to confronted him to his face. So Peter, you're an apostle. You should know better, right? In fact, you're the guy that in Acts chapter 10, you go to Cornelius' house and, and that, that sheet is falling with all the animals and everything on it and telling you to eat. You, you know that the distinction between the Gentile and Jew is gone. That it's simply a matter of faith. That it's not a matter of your own ethnicity anymore. That God is working with that specific people group. It is not that way anymore. The gospel has gone to the Gentiles and you are not walking in line. You are not in step with the gospel. And so Paul confronts Peter right to his Face, You see, the gospel, what it does is it, it seeks to root out hypocrisy out of our own lives. Those who, who value the gospel, who value the gospel's power in their lives, they, they know that there's absolutely no room for hypocrisy because the gospel is rooting it out of them. And so the Apostle Paul jumps right at Peter and he confronts him over his hypocrisy. Peter knows the gospel. He knows he shouldn't be living this way. He knows he shouldn't be doing what he's doing in regard to refusing to eat with Gentiles. But he does it anyway. He is playing the hypocrite. And the truth is for all of us that if an apostle of God can struggle with hypocrisy, then you and I can struggle with hypocrisy as well. But I want you to look at another Galatians passage. Flip over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, Paul continues, and he ends up bringing up this illustration that we're all very familiar with, but the illustration of the the fruit of the Spirit and the tree and so forth. But I want you to notice in Galatians 5 and verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh, they're evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you see what he does here. That, that these are the works of the flesh And that they are evident, right? Immorality, impurity, sensuality. So those those sexual vices, whether physical or pornographic. But idolatry, strife, jealousy, anger, dissensions and divisions and envy. And some of you might might step back and think, "Well, well, of course I am not involved in some of those sins. But the truth is that several of those in particular are wildly acceptable in the lives of Christians. Where we say, well, certainly I'm not a drunk, but having an anger fit every now and then, it's not a big deal. 
Or we might say, well, of course I would never be involved in something like an orgy. But a little strife, I mean, every single person in the world has got a little strife going on, right? Or I would never be involved with sorcery. But what's wrong with being jealous, right? I mean, because everybody gets jealous. Everybody, you know, somebody gets a big buck this time of year. And it's like, man, I'm totally jealous. That, that, it's, it's just totally a part of life. But the Apostle Paul is so clear with his warning in verse 21. He says, I warn you, like I have warned you before, that those of you who do these kinds of things that I've just listed, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So when you read a verse like verse 21, and it lists all of those sins, comes to verse 21. So I warn you, like I warned you before, that if you do those things, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. When you read that, what do you think? I mean, usually me, I'm just kind of, oh, on to the next verse. On to the next verse. But does it cause you to pray for those you know who are involved in such sins? Or do you just continue on? Does it cause you to, to reflect? Does it cause you to think... I am warning you, Brandon, that those who do those kinds of things, you yourself, in doing those kinds of things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, come back to Matthew 21. But as you do, analyze your own life. Is is that fruit, that fruit from Galatians 5, is that hanging on the boughs of your life? Are you a tree that's bearing fruit? Or are, are you a tree with plenty of leaves? with plenty of branches and absolutely no fruit at all. Are you a hypocrite? Do do love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and all of those things, does that fill the limbs of your life like like an apple tree in the fall that's just weighted down by all of those apples ready to be picked? Do the fruit of the Spirit hang from your soul? Friends, the truth is, in regards to the, the fruit that we hopefully all long to see, Within, within our lives. That fruit cannot be pushed out of our own strength. I'm sure if that guy's fake tree could, it, it would put that fruit out if it could. It, it, would. it would. It would at least try to put some out, right? But it can't do it on its own. So it's not, I, I know I need to be more loving with my spouse. Mm, try real hard. Okay, now I love my spouse more. Or, I know I need to be more patient with my children. Try real hard. Uh, be patient with my children. And then I'm more patient with my children. That's just not how it works. The fruit of the Spirit that grows on the branches of our lives can only be produced by the Spirit. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. It's not called the fruit of Brandon. It's not called the fruit of any of you. It's called the fruit of the Spirit because He's the one who is growing those things on your life. It is, not, it is not yourself. You cannot try harder and harder and harder. You just burn yourself right into the ground. It's all about dependence by faith on the Spirit of God to grow those things in your life and living your life in submission to the Spirit and the Word of God so that He can bring those fruits out in your life. And so the question is, where is 
the fruit? Are there spiritual figs growing on the limbs of your soul? Or are you a hypocrite with all the appearance of fruit, but with none at all? And these questions are so important for us to be answering. Because just as Jesus stood as the judge over this fig tree, he stands as judge over all of us. It's like the biggest fear in our society. Man, you, you can't judge me. But Jesus is going to judge you. He's going to judge all of us. And will not many stand before him on that day and say, Lord, didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do this in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Speak words of prophecy in your name? Do many good deeds in your name? And all the rest. In other words, Jesus, don't you remember when I was on earth and, and I bore all of these fruit? And what's Jesus say? He says, depart from me. I have no idea who you are. So you looked the part. You had the leaves. You had the appearance of fruit. But the fruit that you are claiming to have was not real fruit at all, but fake. Like that, like that waxy fruit at furniture stores and those bowls. That's the kind of fruit that you and I have. It's not real fruit. It's nothing. According to Mark's timeline, Jesus curses the tree which again foreshadows what he's going to do in the temple. He judges the tree, then he goes to the temple, and he judges all those people, and he presses them out. And I want you to notice the response back in Matthew 21, in verse 20. When the disciples saw it, the withered tree, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree. But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And so the disciples, they they come along the next day. They see the tree. So this is Tuesday morning now. They see the tree. They start marveling over the fact that it has Withered, which I find to be kind of superficial on their part because they've seen Jesus do so many fantastic miracles. A withering tree really doesn't seem to be all that incredible in comparison to the winds and the waves. But if you notice what Jesus does, he doesn't really sit on their response. He dives deeper. He goes deeper with them. He says, if you have faith and you do not doubt, you could look at a mountain and tell it to be thrown into the sea And that mountain would be cast into the sea. So you remember he took that fig tree and it was kind of like a parable. Well, he now looks probably over to what would be the Mount of Olives. And he says, if you wanted to take that mountain and cast it into the sea, in reference to probably the Dead Sea, taking the Mount of Olives and throwing it into the Dead Sea, if you want that to happen, it will happen. And what Jesus is doing is he's using the mountain and the sea in a hyperbolic sort of way. In the 2,000 years since Jesus said this, I've never heard of somebody who literally took a mountain and cast it into a sea. And there's a reason for that. It's hyperbole. Although it would be magnificent, right? Imagine going up to Sugarloaf and just ripping it up and throwing it off into some, throwing it off into the Atlantic. That'd be pretty cool to do. But that is not what Jesus is going for. He's not going for some kind of trick. He's using the mountain and sea illustration to to demonstrate something far bigger. 
in regards to faith. That faith is not about being able to do a, a few cool tricks and throw mountains around. But faith is about real power. It's about the real gospel to do incredible work in the lives of born sinners. So it's an even greater miracle. You think throwing a mountain into a sea is something great? That is nothing in comparison to your heart of stone turning into a heart of flesh and giving glory to God with your life. There is not even a comparison there. It's so wonderful. I love the words uh, called, uh, of a song called By Faith playing off this passage. By faith this mountain shall be moved and the power of the gospel shall prevail. For we know in Christ all things are possible for those who call upon his name. You notice he references prayer here. A, a doubtless prayer. A prayer of faith. Biblically defined. You remember in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. At the beginning of that great hall of faith chapter. He defines what faith is. He says now faith is the substance or the assurance of things hoped for. It is the evidence or the conviction of things that you're not able to see. I think faith in, in our culture, it's often this nebulous kind of thing, kind of slips in and out of your fingers in, in regards to your faith. People, people, skeptics, critics, they like to criticize Christians and those of even other beliefs of having some sort of crutch that, oh, that's your faith, that's your crutch, but there's really nothing to it. It's not really definable, but that's not how the Bible views faith at all. Faith is assurance. It's built on the bedrock of truth. It is conviction of something not seen. Assurance and conviction are not nebulous terms. They're firm, right? They're solid. They're resolved. They're uh, immovable terms that really should be defining in the lives of the Christian. So hypocrisy is a wishy-washy facade that changes with the audience. But faith is assurance and conviction that stays as firm as the one in whom the faith is placed. That's what faith is. And it's, it's what Jesus is requiring of the disciples if they are going to do great things for the kingdom of God. I mean, you think of the lives of these disciples as they continue through the book of Acts and as they write their letters and all the rest. What do you find these guys doing? You find them preaching the gospel. They're telling people about Jesus. They're writing letters. They're taking care of their families. They're working. They're praying. They're doing all of these things. You think of great men and women uh, throughout the centuries. And what do you see? That, that have given their lives over to God and let God take them as vessels to do whatever he wants to do with them. What do you see in their lives? You just see them living faithfully. It's not the great things that they themselves are doing. It's the great things that God is doing through them, they are simply living faithfully. So we don't want to be hypocrites on the one side. We want to be those who are living lives of faith. Where that, that fruit is being born out of our branches as a result of what the Spirit is doing in our life. So we know that the fruit of the Spirit, if you know this fruit of the Spirit, isn't hanging from your life. And we know that we really aren't living lives that exemplify faith. What is that? That's hypocrisy. If the fruit isn't really there, we make it at least look like it's there. And nobody will ever know the difference. But is that the kind of life worth living? Man, that is more work to constantly be putting on the facade than just living as who you are in Christ, bearing the fruit that He bears 
through you. I mean, wouldn't you rather live by faith? Praying to God in faith, seeing God do mighty things in your life and the life of others as a result of His working through you by faith. I mean, I don't want to be stagnant personally. I want there to be more fruit to be growing. I want my faith to be growing. I want everything stagnant about my spirituality to go. And I want the stagnant nature of even maybe in our church. I want it all to be gone and to stop the hypocrisy. Friends, when you came to worship God this morning, did it require you to have faith or did it require you to put on a mask? There's a massive difference. Jesus wants you to have faith. You look at that great Hall of Faith chapter again that I mentioned in the book of Hebrews, and after the author defines what faith is, he goes on and on to list example after example after example of those who lived by faith, allowing God to do great things through and for them. You look at the previous 20 chapters of the book of Matthew that we've already been through, and you see Jesus constantly pushing this idea of faith onto his disciples, four times referring to them as having little faith, showing them the examples of the Gentiles who had greater faith than even those who had been following Jesus, teaching the disciples, Jesus was teaching his disciples as well, to have faith in God to provide their food and to provide their clothes, teaching them not to doubt, teaching them that that even faith the size of a little seed could move mountains, could do great things, not because the disciples are, are great, but because of who they put their faith in was great. And by putting their doubtless faith, regardless of its size, into the hands of God, greater things, far greater things than even moving a mountain could happen. Faith in God through the gospel is the remedy for hypocrisy, just like it's the remedy for every struggle that we have. We're all going to have times of temptation. We're all going to struggle. But having faith alone in Christ alone, it frees me from the temptation to make you think something of me that isn't true. Faith in God frees me from feeling like I need to be a hypocrite. It frees me to be who I really am as a child of God. It frees me from not feeling like I have to put on that mask when I see you. Friends, the Bible is so clear on faith. It says that whatsoever does not proceed from faith is sin. Our lives are to be lived through faith. It also says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And is this not our ultimate aim? Hypocrisy is about protecting ourselves, and faith is about pleasing God. Ultimately, our hypocrisy needs to be confronted with the gospel. Like Paul confronts Peter with the gospel, we ourselves need to be confronted with the nature and truth of the gospel to root this hypocrisy that is so deeply rooted within our lives. And may the Spirit of God do that. Maybe he can, maybe, may He confront us this morning on our own hypocrisy and our own lack of faith and stir within us once again the desire to live by faith in Christ. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truth of the gospel. Lord, you have come, died on the cross for sin, risen to give victory over sin and death and judgment. And Father, we look forward to the eternity with you, living without hypocrisy. What a day 
that will be when we can be with you for all eternity. No masks, just being who we are in Christ. May you give us a taste of that now. May you strip us of our masks. May you grow fruit where there is only leaves. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.